Um, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here at Real Life Church, and it's my pleasure to be um, preaching today, bringing you the word, and we're going to be looking at the second in our series um, called He is Alive, where we look at the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection to us. Um, I don't know uh, how many of you have been around church a very long time, but, but I, I have now. And the weird thing is, it feels like yesterday that I got saved, but I've been around church a long time now. Um, and very often, what we do is we build up towards Easter, and we preach about Easter, and we preach about the passion and Christ going to the cross and dying for our sins, and then on the third day rising from death and celebrating that resurrection. And then next Sunday, we carry on with something else. And what we wanted to do with Easter this year was, yes, build up towards Easter, but let's, let's talk about what happens after Easter. What is the significance of the fact that Christ rose from the dead and that he stayed risen from the dead, and that he is now alive. So that's what we've, we've been looking at. I don't know um, how many stories you've had about heaven, but I've got to tell you a couple of stories that I heard. When I was a little guy, um, running around in South Africa, barefoot on the streets, even though there were cars and health and safety wasn't really a thing, I had a little dog. He was a great dog. He was, he was a dog I, I loved very, very much. But one day, he was knocked over by a car. And I don't want to go into the, the details, but long story short, he died. And I was gutted. I remember being told by my parents that, that he's gone to heaven. Now, I know I'm going down a potentially rabbit hole there, a theological one. Uh, I'm not going to indulge any of you on whether animals go to heaven or not. But I remember being told that he was going to heaven. So, so I just um, had this kind of picture of Tom running around on puffy clouds and getting the best bones available and eating them all the time and looking very chuffed with himself, looking very pleased. And, and I heard the same thing when my, my grandpa died, that he's gone to heaven and he's with Jesus now and he's much happier. And we hear it whenever we go to a funeral. Actually, when, even when we become Christians, we hear that, don't we? We say, well, now you've given your life to Jesus, you're guaranteed of eternity in His presence in heaven. Now, like most kids, I went through a stage, I'm sure the rest of you were perfect and didn't do this, but I went through a stage when I thought that I knew better than everyone else. Not just some people, not just my parents and my teachers, but everyone else. Everyone had got it wrong, and I was right. And I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite get my head around why an eternity in a kind of, I don't know, sort of spiritual hall singing songs and not eating um, was a good thing. It just seemed so very different from my experience on earth. I, rem I remember lying around in my room with nothing to do, and an hour felt like an eternity. And if I couldn't go, to, if I went down to the kitchen looking for something to eat and there wasn't something there, oh man, it was worse. So for me to kind of think about, okay, I'm not sure I could do an actual eternity of not doing a whole lot. 
it got even more weird because then I started surfing and I, I loved it. And then there was this very, very helpful lady in, in our church that turned to me one day and she said, Jeremy, do you know that there's not going to be any sea and no waves in heaven? And I was stressed out. I'm like, seriously? She says, no, yep, yep. The Bible says that the high places will be laid low and the, the, the low places will be leveled out and there'll be no sea. I'm like, what? Seriously? I mean, I can think of a few things that shouldn't be in heaven. I can think of a lot of things that shouldn't be in heaven, but mountains and seas, they should definitely be there. They should definitely be there. Those are good things, surely. So I wasn't surprised when Mia's dad, I'm sitting down with my youngest son, and we're talking about the same thing, and he's asking me questions about heaven, and he looks at me and he goes, it sounds boring. <laughs> when I heard him say that, I'm like, I know what's been happening here. It's not just what we've been talking about, it's what kids have been talking about in the playground as well. And they're doing the same thing. They've got this frame of reference, this picture of their lives, what's fun and what's not, and then they told what heaven looks like, and it's like, man, that doesn't work at all for us. It sounds boring. Now, relax. I'm not saying there is no heaven. I'm not that beetle. Um, but I do believe that, that, that we've oversimplified things a little bit. You see, the Bible speaks of a day when Christ will return, and we, the saints, will meet Him, and we will be glorified. And all of those that the Bible says has fallen asleep, those who have physically died, will be raised again. And everything will be restored. The Bible says that God created everything and when He looked at it, it was good. And it says that He is on a mission of restoration of everything. So the Bible talks about a physical resurrection for all who are in Christ, and, and not just a momentary resurrection like Lazarus, who, who was raised from the dead just to die again. The Bible speaks of a, an eternal physical resurrection. I don't know what that's going to look like, but what I do know is it's physical and spiritual and eternal, and the Bible promises us that it's going to be wonderful. So whatever your frame of reference, you're going to have to put that aside because there's no way on earth that your brain can get around how wonderful it will be to spend an eternity in the presence of your king in a physical, eternal sense. And that's what we're going to be looking at for a little while. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be spending six weeks looking at chapter 15. Um, so if you want to, you can pull out your Bibles. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 today. Just to put this into context, though, and there's a couple of contexts, ours and then the Bibles. So we've just finished a series in Leviticus. Remember that awesome series where we were looking at going into His presence and His holiness and how wonderful He is and how we have to act to be able to move into His presence and how challenging that is. And at the same time, we were looking at the life of Christ and His journey to the cross as we were going through our series in life groups. So we were looking at God's holiness and 
what is required to be in His presence, and at the same time, we're looking at the Lamb of God. We're looking at the one who was born to take away the sins of the world. And then last week, we celebrated the victory. We celebrated the victory, not just of Him dying for us, but the fact that His sacrifice was sufficient, and the evidence of that sufficiency was His bodily resurrection. That's why we come to church on a Sunday, not a Saturday. We don't celebrate the Lord on the Sabbath. We celebrate it on the day that He rose from the dead, the first day of the week, Sunday. And then, at that time, we met Paul. And we met Paul as he was on, his, on the road to Damascus and was knocked off his, his horse and um, was blinded. And we found out how he got saved, not because of t- the testimony or preaching of a person, but because he was spoken to directly by the risen Christ. And now we're going to spend six weeks looking at one chapter of a letter from that Paul, Paul Saul, to the church in Corinth. So what was Paul's relationship to the Corinthian church? So first off, Paul planted the church in Corinth. He was on a mission trip, and he settled in Corinth, and he spoke to two people who became Christians, and from there they built the church. He preached the gospel to them. He spent about a year and a half with them, and then he left them with good leaders, and he continued on his missionary journey. You can read all about that in Acts 18, and he leaves them uh, first verse of Acts 19. He then, about a year later, he wrote a letter to them, which we don't, we don't have that letter, but we know about it because it's referred to in 1 Corinthians. So he wrote a letter to them, and on the back of that letter, they wrote back to him, and they had some, some specific questions about life and theology, and those questions worried Paul. They raised something in his mind where he felt this church is going off track, something is going wrong at the church that I planted with the people that I love in Corinth. And so 1 Corinthians is his response to that letter from them. Now, there's a couple of things that you can pick up through reading 1 Corinthians about what he wanted to address. There were a few things going on. Number one, they were grumbling about him. There were people within the Corinthian church that had an issue with Paul. Some of them said that, well, Paul's not a true apostle because he wasn't, he, he didn't become an apostle, he wasn't one of the disciples, and um, so, you know, there's, there's others that, that we probably need to listen to. There were other people preaching the gospel that were perhaps more charismatic than Paul, had a better way with words than Paul, which is hard to believe, but anyway. Um, so there was this sort of like grumbling, moaning about him. Then they were getting into factionism. There were these divisions and disputes and arguments within the church of Corinth. And some of that was around Apollos or Paul or other preachers. They were selfish and treating each other badly. There were accounts of them 
taking the, the, the communion table and turning it into a feast and eating so much that there was nothing left for some of them. And Paul had to address those kinds of things. They, they were suing each other. They were, they were guilty of some spectacularly inappropriate, immoral behavior. I mean, you can go and read Corinthians if you want to, but this is kind of, this is stuff that, that even the pagans around them would be blushing at. It was, quite frankly, embarrassing. So, I mean, if, if you've got a church that you want to emulate out of the New Testament, this isn't it. The Corinthian church was not in a good place. And when we read the letter to the Corinthians, we should not have any illusions that, that Paul is writing to a church that, that he is he is holding up as an example of what a Christian church should look like. Nonetheless, he loves them, he cares for them, and he wants to address for them in the best way possible how they can move from this error back into a place where they are in Christ's will. I mean, the most well-known parts of these two letters is, is that bit where Paul gives instruction on the use of the charismatic gifts, you know, how to use tongues and prophecy wisely in public gatherings like this, and we use those instructions as, as a guide for how we have orderly worship, but he wasn't telling them that because they weren't being spiritual enough. He wasn't, he wasn't instructing them because they didn't use the gifts. He was, they were using them in too much and they were using them in the, in the wrong way. They, they were complete, getting completely off the big thing, off the, main, off the main point, and going to this weird sort of competitive spirituality where they were trying to be better than each other, one-up each other, and, um, and Paul had to put an end to it and tell them what their behavior looked like from the outside and what it was doing to them as a congregation. And then there's chapter 15. Why is chapter 15 in there? Paul addresses all of those issues through the book, but in chapter 15, he cuts to the heart of the problem. You see, the Corinthian church had fallen into an error. They were saying that there is no resurrection. That was one of the things that he heard from them in their letter back to him. That some are saying that there is no resurrection. Now, let's be clear what they weren't denying. They weren't denying that Christ rose from the dead. They believed that, but what they didn't believe is that any of them or any person anywhere for all eternity will rise from the dead bodily once they have died. And, you know, that, that is a, but they, what they did believe is in an eternal salvation, a spiritual eternal salvation where they would be in Christ's presence and that it would be wonderful. And it was a, a very, actually a very common belief in, in Greek society to have that kind of picture of an eternal spiritual afterlife. That wasn't weird, but, but doesn't it sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like a lot of what most of the developed world believes as well, including many Christians, that we, you know, we, we talk about Christ's resurrection, but we don't spend a heck of a lot of time talking about our own. We spend a lot of time talking about heaven. We spend a lot of time talking about being, being, being in a spiritual state of eternal 
presence with Christ. Alongside this belief was, was the belief that the spiritual was superior to the physical. It wasn't purely spirit is good and flesh is evil. It was more that, that spirit is superior and therefore flesh is redundant, not necessary, old um, and, and not worth considering or, or worrying about, unimportant. And Paul wrote chapter 15 to address this for two reasons. Number one, he had to try and reason with them. If there is no resurrection, then it makes no sense that Christ was resurrected. How can you believe two things at the same time? How can you believe that resurrection is not possible for believers who are in Christ, and yet you can believe that Christ himself rose from the dead? It doesn't make any sense. But if he wasn't resurrected, then there is no hope for any of us and so we are wasting our time putting our faith in Him and deferring immediate pleasure in this life, which we could quite happily have, but we've deferred it because of Christ for an eternal gain that will never come. So that was the first reason he wrote chapter 15. Is like, hang on, if you hang on to this belief that there is no resurrection, you're gonna have to do away with the resurrection of Christ. And if you do away with the resurrection of Christ, you do away with your faith completely. You should be pitied. You should, you should be, uh, people should feel sorry for you. And then secondly, he had to address this because this belief in spirit being superior to flesh was probably driving the rest of their poor behavior. If the flesh is redundant and unimportant, then what you do with the flesh is inconsequential. If the spirit is superior and, and more important than the flesh, then those that behave more spiritually are superior to those who don't, and so on and so forth. So he addresses all of their, their issues with this fundamental point. You can't let go of the resurrection. So we're going to we're going to move through chapter 15. Today we're looking at 1 through 11, where Paul says to the Corinthians that this is of first importance. This is so important to you, Corinthian church, and this is so important to you, real life church. There's so much more that we can be doing better at, but you will do better at it if you get this one thing straight. Then we're gonna look at 12 to 19, where where Paul addresses that point that I've just made directly. If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. Then on, in 20 to 28, we're going to look at a, a wonderful piece by Paul where he, he describes the death of death when Christ died at the cross and rose again. The death of death and how our hope in our future resurrection is sure because it's already started because we're in Christ when he was victorious over death he was victorious over death for all of us. So our resurrection has already begun. And then we're going to look at 29 through to 34, where he says that this is the future hope that helps us make sense of our current struggles. Now, I know Melanie addressed this a little bit last week, but, 
I mean, anybody who tells you that um, giving your life to Christ is going to give you a, a life of, of um, you know, milk and honey, and you're just going to sail through, and nothing's going to go wrong. You're not going to be challenged, or, or um, you're not going to you're not going to struggle in any way, shape, or form. Is lying to you. But without the future hope of resurrection, those struggles don't make sense. So that will be looked at in 29 through 34. And then 35 to 49, we'll be looking at those glorified bodies that are the same, but not the same, clearly, because as we know, Jesus was eating fish and walking through walls. Intriguing. (laughs) I want to know what that's like. And then finally, 50 through to 58, where he affirms that um, your labor is not in vain. And he talks particularly about himself and about the other apostles and the sacrifices that they have made in preaching the gospel. So if you wanna read ahead, that's where we're going. There's a wonderful book that I've got for you as well to start the series with a mighty triumph written by Rhett Dobson, Dodson, sorry. Um, it's a really good summary of chapter 15 and uh, what Paul stands for when he, he says, listen, guys, we cannot let go of the resurrection as our future hope. So I've got four of these here. If anybody wants them, come up and grab them and they, they're yours. <laughs> here we go. I'll just pop them over here and you can pick them up. There we go. Okay. Right. So let's start. Verse 1. Let's read this. Should I move across a little bit? Okay. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Paul's doing two things here. Number one, he's reminding the Corinthians that they heard the gospel from him. They heard the gospel from Paul. They received it from him. Remember, they were grumbling about him. Part of what he needs to do here is remind them of the importance of him as their father and and the, the one who planted the church. So he reminds them that they heard the gospel from him. And secondly, he's reminding them that they received it, that they believed it, and that they currently stand in it as the hope of their salvation, in which you stand, so, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, this is, this is a conditional sentence, if you hold fast. He's, he's saying that receiving the message at a point in the past is, is not enough. You can't receive a message and then stop receiving the message. You can't believe it and then stop believing it. That belief has to continue. It needs to be a continued belief in the gospel and it needs to continue shaping your life every day. Um, so there's the sense of you were saved when Christ was crucified and rose again. You were justified. And now he's saying you are being saved. 
And this is an ongoing process which, which, which theologians call sanctification. You're becoming more and more like Christ. You're becoming more and more separated and more and more like Him. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. This is, this is important. And again, he's doing two things. Paul is making it clear that the words he gave to them were not his own. He's doing the job of an apostle. He's, receiving, he's received a message and he's delivering the report of that message directly to the Corinthians. That's what he says. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. Also, the phrase, as of first importance, is, is to be considered. This, this means that what he's about to say, the summary that's coming up, which is, is to follow, is, just, is, is not just of initial importance. First importance doesn't mean, okay, well, you know, this is, this is the first thing I'm going to say to you, and then I'm going to move on to other things that, that are, are more important, but this is of fundamental importance. This is of the utmost importance. That's what that word means. It doesn't mean, mean first and then there's more important things to come. It means it's of fundamental importance. This is the never-changing foundation of everything else and its implications permeate everything else all of the time. And you need to keep on coming back to it every single day. And this is the summary, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what we celebrate at Easter. But Paul uses this phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. So you need to remember when he was writing this, the, the New Testament wasn't considered Scriptures, the Old Testament was considered scriptures. So he, he uses this phrase to refer to the fact that what happened at the cross was foretold in the Old Testament and happened in accordance with what was written in the Old Testament. And then he continues with, with our witness evidence that he did indeed rise from the dead. So it's not just a theological statement that he makes in the summary he carries on and he says, and that he appeared. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the 12, those are his disciples, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, way more way more witnesses than are needed to verify the fact. And many of them are around. If you actually wanted to go and interview them and check the, the veracity of the evidence, you can go and talk to them right now. They're still around. A few of them have fallen asleep, but most of them are still here. Then he appeared to James. Now, there's a few Jameses, but the, the most probable is that this is Jesus' younger brother, James, who wasn't a believer before Jesus went to the cross, but he appeared to James, and this resulted in his salvation. And then to all the apostles, the wider group. Last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, this is super important. It echoes what I said earlier. Paul did not learn the gospel from another source. He didn't hear it from another person. He was not brought to faith by another apostle. He encountered the risen Christ for himself. When he was knocked off of his horse, he saw the bright light, he heard the voice, but his companions heard it as well. This was not a vision, it was not a purely spiritual experience. This was Paul coming into the presence of the risen Christ and being taught the gospel by Christ. So even though he was late to the party, Jesus had a plan for Paul all along, and that was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he continues, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Uh, It'll be great to go into the history of of what Paul was up to, and I know Melanie touched on it, but but he was was radical. And, And he was radical because he was he, he, he loved God. He loved the Old Testament. He was, he was immersed in the Old Testament. And he, he, he did everything he could to exterminate the sect that he thought was, was a threat to God's plan for the people of Israel. So for him to change and become the greatest writer of, of content of the New Testament is an absolute miracle. But he says that I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they So we preach, and so you believed. Now, that whole piece over there, it sounds like Paul's doing a a lot of hard work to justify himself. But remember that he's writing to a church that's grumbling about him and is involved in factionalism. And what he's saying to them is, listen, it doesn't matter who you got the message from. I know full well what happened to me. I know what Christ taught me. I know what I have sacrificed to spread that message across the known world. And I know that I love you and I'm willing to write this letter again to make sure that you persevere in your faith. That's what he's saying to them. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you got the message from. If you've got it from somebody else and you believe it, absolutely fine. Stop with the factionalism. We are not celebrities. We are messengers. And it is the message that you have believed. So he actually, through this piece, is is even though he's defending himself, he kind of takes himself out of the picture and says, forget about me. Let's just talk about what we agree about. And he, he raises this point, not because they don't believe. Remember I said in the beginning, they believe 
that Jesus rose from the dead. They believe everything is just raised. This is going to be the foundation of the rest of his argument to them. And so he's making sure that they understand that this is of primary importance, most important, and it's the message that's important, not the messenger. So what can we learn from this? What, when we look at this and we, we, we see how Paul has addressed the church in Corinth, what can we learn about ourselves? First of all, this is of utmost importance. This summary is so important. It's, it needs to be something that we, we dwell on every day. If we find ourselves in a challenging situation in our own behavior, in our own beliefs, if we find ourselves doubting, if we find our, our moral behavior wavering, if we find that we, 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 we're suddenly struggling with people and we feel animosity towards them, what do we do? Yes, of course we repent, of course we try and be better, but hang on, Lord, help me to remember the gospel. Help me to remember what you achieved for me. Help me to remember what I'm looking forward to that makes my current struggle make sense. Bring me peace, Lord, in this moment. This is not something we, we, we read about when we become a Christian and pull out every year at Easter. This is of utmost importance. It's to be at the forefront of our minds, day in and day out. Not just because by it we were saved, but because by it we are being saved, and by it we will be saved. We will be saved. We will be glorified when Christ returns. Secondly, there is no doubt. There is no doubt. Paul did not raise the gospel account, as I said, because the Corinthians didn't believe in it. He, he was just reminding them that there's more than enough evidence to prove the veracity of the claims. But it is useful for us to consider these words in today's climate where the integrity of the Easter account is so often called into question. And I just wanted to highlight this to you. This was written to the Corinthians at a time when Paul could point to living eyewitnesses of around about 500 that you could go to and talk. I mean, honestly, if you were gonna try and pull the wool over somebody's eyes, you would not go and show them the people that they could go and check could, that would be able to verify the facts. And I pray that, that these words are a great encouragement and a strengthen of, of your faith as you are, are constantly in the presence of scoffers, constantly in the presence of, of cynics, um, there is, there is no other historical event that has the evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has. There is no other historical um, event. And then thirdly, and this is where I wanna, I wanna float for us, with, with us for a little bit. Judge the message, not the messenger. Paul did a lot of work to make this point with the Corinthian church. And I think in our world today, it's an important point to make for us as well. He refers to himself as a late arrival, as the least, as the least worthy because of his history with the church. 
And, you know, he doesn't actually bring it up because he feels like talking about it. He brings it up because they are talking about it. He does this because the Corinthians' objection was that he was untimely born. It was a little less pleasantly phrased than untimely born. It's kind of like he was a bit of a, an abnormality and therefore not authoritative. So, so he shows them that their objection is true. Yes, he became an apostle later than the rest, but it's not valid because his testimony lines up with the apostolic tradition, that, that what he, he brought to them was no different to what would have been brought by Peter or by James or, or any of the other apostles. And that's really important for us. Don't judge the messenger, judge the message. We're not here to be entertained by a celebrity or to ascribe truth to the words of someone simply because they seem to be very important. Or, and, and we certainly aren't called to ignore or discredit someone because they don't have a platform or a reputation. We're to judge the message. And today there is so much, there is so much content available to us, so much good stuff and so much, to be quite honest, absolute tripe, complete and utter rubbish. And it is, it is dished up in bucket loads, but in such quick, short bursts that it's really difficult to discern what is true and what isn't. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot out there that's really clever. They play with words that would convince you. But listen to me. I want to challenge you. There's so much that comes from people with power, with resource, and charisma. And as I said, a lot of it is good. But none of those people know you. Not one of them know you. None of them preach the gospel to you face to face. None of those people will be there when you're struggling. None of them will be there when you need a firm word or will be there when you object to that firm word and deal with the fallout from it. You're part of a church here where you're cared for, where the gospel is preached, where you are challenged. We are not perfect. We don't get it right all the time. But like Paul, we're willing to go the distance with you. And I would like to challenge you to be thinking about that as, as we go into the rest of this message, as we go into the next six weeks. Where are you getting your information from? Who are you listening to? And how do you assess whether it's worth listening to or not? Is it because they've got a big ministry somewhere? Is it because they have massive, I don't know, followers or likes or views or whatever on YouTube? Or is it the message itself? Are you actually used to listening to the content of the message and comparing it to what the Bible says? Because if you do that, you will pick up the same story that Paul preached to the Corinthians, 
the same story that we continue preaching to you today, that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And band, if you can come back up, I don't even know what the time is, so I hope we're, we're good. But um, yeah, if, if we can spend a little bit of time thinking about that, that Christ is risen. And the fact that we're going, to, we're going to come across a lot of stuff in our lives, a lot of challenges, and some of it is not going to make sense. I know that there will be a lot of you, and there are a lot of you right now, that are going, God, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? I said I believe you. I said I love you. The Bible says that by your stripes I am healed. The Bible says that you will protect me, that you will keep me safe, that you will make a table for me in the midst of my enemies. The Bible says that I will be led near still waters and green pastures and you will shepherd me well. So why is this happening to me? And I want you to remember what Paul preached to the Corinthians, that this is of utmost importance, that Christ, in accordance with Scriptures, died for our sins, that He was buried, and that on the third day, He rose again. He rose again. And church... You are in Christ. When He rose again, you rose again. In Him is the hope of future glory. In Him is the hope of the culmination of history and a time when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, and we will be eternally in His presence. Okay. So, Lord, we just want to thank you for what you achieved at the cross. And, Lord, we also want to say sorry for, for reducing what you did at the cross to, to a historical event, something in history that we remember every now and again. And, Lord, right now, by your Spirit, we pray that you will work in the hearts and minds of those who love you. And those that don't know you yet, Lord, that they would see that this is of such great significance to them. Lord, we pray for peace as we understand what you achieved. We pray for joy in our hearts in the midst of challenge because of what you achieved. In Jesus' name, amen.